1: At luckylandslots.com.
3: Available to players in the US, excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group, void where prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
4: The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily.
2: Hello, welcome. This is Football Social Daily, a daily Premier League podcast. And with the amount going on in the Premier League right now, it's pretty much the only way you can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the top flight. It is fast and furious. Today on the podcast, we've got Monday's games to talk about. Tonight, we've got Leeds. They're looking to take their all-action football to Wolves at Ellen Road. And it's the all-important box office smashing West Brom versus Burnley. We're going to look ahead to those matches very shortly. We're also going to be looking back at last night's fourth win from four for Aston Villa as they beat a blunt Leicester City in Sunday's late kickoff. And Liverpool fans, you might want to look away now because I'm going to be chatting in a bit to injury expert Ben Dinnery about the prognosis on Virgil van Dijk after the defender picked up an ACL injury in the Merseyside derby this weekend gone. And... Well, it's not good news, I'm afraid to tell you. A little bit of a spoiler there. We're also going to talk about Crystal Palace in our Floodlight Focus portion of the show. We're going to be talking to Joe Doyle from Football London about everything going on at Selhurst Park. To cover all that... On the Football Social Daily, a man with as many appearances as Virgil van Dijk has for Liverpool. We've got Narma Korn. How are you doing, Niall? I'm very well. Does that mean you're going to give me six months layoff, Jim, if I pretend <laughs> that I've hurt my knee?
5: It means I don't have to do the podcast for a bit. Are you
2: suggesting Virgil van Dijk is pretending he's hurt his knee? No, I'd
5: just rather do it that way than you two-foot me in the office or something <laughs> okay. like that. All right.
2: Tell you what, if, if you can if you can withstand a Jordan Pickford scissor kick, then I might consider giving <laughs> you a few months off. Watching him is bad enough. Do. <laughs> uh, and also, we've got the flip side of the corner here is Tom Williams, who, as an Aston Villa fan, it's no surprise he's come out of the woodwork for his very first appearance on Football Social Daily. How are you doing, Tom? Uh,
3: Good morning, Jimmy. (laughs) I'm very well, thank you. I hope you are too. I'm uh, beaming from ear to ear this morning.
2: Good good stuff. And uh, Tom is currently a late call-up to the podcast because we've had to miss people around, so he's sitting in his car in a car park somewhere. What can you see from your car park window, Tom? You know
3: what? I can see the lovely autumnal trees. Very nice. Uh, I'm in Leeds City Centre, which is on a local lockdown, so it's not a very inspiring view, I can
2: assure you. A fantastic picture you paint. Uh, Right, let's talk about the football, because last night, if you've listened to the review podcast that came out late on Sunday, you'll notice that we didn't talk about Aston Villa versus Leicester City, because it happened after the podcast was recorded. So, let's... Sorry, my, my brain went. So, let's cover that one off first. I mean... I've got to ask you, Tom, Aston Villa have been absolutely superb since the start of the season. They are the only unbeaten team in the Premier League. I think they're only one of three unbeaten teams across the whole of Europe at the moment. Can they keep this level going or are they going to just drop off at some point and we'll get the Aston Villa that many of us expected? Many of us expected.
3: You know what, as a Villa fan, um, I expected us to do much better this season. Um I mean, I don't want to correct you on my first appearance, Jim, but we're actually one of uh, only two teams in the whole of Europe's top five leagues at the moment to have a 100% record, the other being AC Milan. Um, And I believe we're the only team in England now to have a 100% record. Um, Not that I'm counting, uh, but it is, you know, a little pub quiz question that I'm going to keep in the back of my uh, pocket for for the next time I go pub (laughs) quiz. But um, no, I, I expected us to do better this season. I never, ever thought that we would do as well as we're doing Um, When I first saw the fixtures come out, I thought six points from the first four games would be a good result. Um, You know, you looked at the first two, we had Fulham and Sheffield United. Um, I thought we'd do okay against those two teams. Uh, And then Liverpool, for me, was just let's turn up and and have a go. Um, But I fully expected us to lose Mm. that. Uh, Not quite what happened there. And then um, Leicester City last night, you know, when um, coming out of the Liverpool game uh, with a 7-2 victory, I've been a Villa fan long enough to know that, we were destined to then get hammered by Leicester City, and um, bear in mind that last season I think we lost four nil in the away fixture. Um, although last night was a very different Leicester City, you know, we, they they weren't anywhere near the, the team that they were last season. And I think they had a lot of injuries. You know, so was out, Vardy was obviously a big miss for them. Um, Madison was out. Oh, we came on in the second half, but we had a, a little bit of an injury. So you know they weren't as strong as they were last season. But even then, you know, we we played. We played better than them for the whole game, really. You know, the first 15 minutes or so was a little bit hit and miss. But the big difference for me was that Dean Smith spotted that um, and made some tactical changes. We we looked like we hmm. were setting up more as a sort of four-two-three-one to start with, um and then once the first 15 minutes is out of the way, it looks like he noticed that we needed to make a few changes and switched back to the four-three-three. That's um well, I say that's been doing so well this season it's been doing really well this season last season not so much but I mean to answer your question can we keep it up um no I don't think we will you know I think we, (laughs) (laughs) as much as I would like to say we're going to do Leicester City and win the league I can't see it um I think the main difference for us this season is the fans you know we've not got any fans in the ground I know that's a horrible thing for Mm. fans but I actually think it's doing really well for Villa because Villa fans are by their very nature fickle Um, And, you know, I had to unfollow all of the Villa Facebook pages last season because of the amount of abuse people like Dean Smith was getting. Uh, So, you know, they're a fickle bunch. And as soon as a miss, you know, there's a pass misplaced when you're watching the game, the fans get on the players' backs. Um, And so I think not having the fans on the grounds has been a real advantage for us so far. Um, I don't think we're going to win the league. I think we'll be comfortably top 10. Um, And, you know, that for us at this stage in our... Our development, you know, this stage of the project is, is phenomenal um, and it's a massive achievement, I think.
2: Yeah, you would have bitten someone's hand off at the beginning of the season if they offered you a top 10 finish. It's interesting that Tom says that Dean Smith deserves credit because it's quite often the way when a team spends a load of money in the transfer window, the players that have been bought in get the credit, Nile, But actually here, Dean Smith, a manager that was under pressure last season, deserves credit for the performances that Villa are putting in. He does deserve credit. You're absolutely right. And I think the issue
5: was last season was the recruitment, as you say. They just chose the wrong players. Um, Wesley's still injured, but I think when he comes back, is he going to get in ahead of Ollie Watkins? No, probably not. Um, I've slagged him off many a time on the podcast before, and I'm not going to stop now. I don't think Wesley's good enough to, to play up front in the Premier League. Um, Mabwana Samata was an absolute flop. He arrived, I think, uh, and then left in, in, um, in the summer. Uh, after they paid a decent amount of money for him and he scored one goal in 14 games so he was a bit of a a bit of a busted flush and um, this season the the investment that's been made by Aston Villa has been so much better, so much more shrewd and they were always able to create chances last season but it was uh, issues at either end of the pitch that was the problem. It was a leaky defence and it was the inability to convert those chances into goals unless it was Grealish, I mean we know how creative he is and how great he is, um, he was the one kind of pulling all the strings in the middle but they didn't have anyone good enough up front to finish off the chances. Um, And now they've brought in uh, Ross Barkley, who's excellent foil to Jack Grealish. Those two seem to work well together. Ollie Watkins has got off to a hot start and that's the that's you know the, the perfect thing you want for a striker coming in from the championship is to come in and hit the ground running in the Premier League because there might always be a bit of an imposter syndrome when you're a championship striker you look at Shea Adams at Southampton where they signed him for 20 plus million last season he didn't score his first goals of the season until the final three or four games so he probably would have been sat there throughout the whole campaign at Southampton thinking alright well Danny Ings is banging in all these goals he's played in the championship um, why can I not find the back of the net so for Watkins to come in and score early Mm. doors has been really good for his confidence Um, Martinez has been an inspired signing Um, Pepe Reina was an awful decision to bring in He was nowhere near the goalkeeper that he was 10 years ago at Liverpool and I think he actually cost Aston Villa a few points last season um, during Project Restart if I remember rightly. He he made a couple of errors. So, um, I didn't think that Pepe Reina was any good. So, uh, I mean, Tom Heaton obviously was injured so that was the issue there. But Martinez, I think, has been a really good replacement. I think Tom Heaton might struggle to get back in the side. Um, And Konza and Mings, their partnership at the back has been absolutely awesome um, the last few weeks. So, I mean, that's been really good to see considering Villa were a little bit leaky last season. So, You know, to be fair, you've got to give credit to Dean Smith because he's addressed the issues in the summer during lockdown. He's really sat down and had to think about where Aston Villa have been going wrong. And he's addressed those problems and it seems to be working to great effect. So fair play to Villa, fair play to Smith and uh, long may it continue from a Villa perspective.
2: Niall touched on the relationship there between Barkley and Grealish, Tom. And I must admit, when Aston Villa signed Ross Barkley, I thought it was a great signing, but I couldn't quite see how it was going to work in that midfield but it's really gone off to a flyer Ross Barkley scored two now in his first two appearances in an Aston Villa shirt Grealish continued his trend of just getting kicked all over the park last night against Leicester City 182 (laughs) times he has now been fouled in the Premier League which is an insane statistic five times last night yeah it's absolutely crazy but seeing those two play together that must give you real hope that there's something special going on
3: yeah, you know what? It's um it, compared to last season we're worlds away. Um and, and I know that Nile was talking about Wesley and, and Pepe Reina. Um I actually think Wesley is, is a good player. Um, he's not a, a lone striker, which is how he was played most of last season. He needs someone so he's a foil, he needs someone to play off him. But um yeah, the the midfield that we've got is is I don't want to get carried away and I'm really struggling not to get carried away after the sort of the last few games that we've had but um you've got Barkley, Grealish, Douglas Luiz who's just started two games for Brazil. Um you've got John McGinn who was Scotland captain last week man of the match performances. He's back to his best now. You know, those players, players in the middle of the park are to me are, you know a top six midfield now. Um and having Barkley in the side just gives Grealish the the freedom to be creative and do what he does best. You know, last season he was repeatedly dropping in deep to try and pick the ball up and push forward. And, you know, he was single-handedly the player that kept us up last year, um, along with Pepperina who I think got us more points than he, he, he dropped us. You know, just drop that one in there. But, um, you know, I, I think it's... Um, <laughs> he was awful, I Tom. Think... Can't have you <laughs> say, was... I can't have you defending him. It was <laughs> he was shocking. He was all right. it he, he, he was what we needed at the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, having, having Barkley come in just gives Grealish that, that flexibility now to go and be creative and know he's got players around him that, are on his wavelength. You know, it was so frustrating last season to see greenish pushing forward, you know, getting into great positions, and there'd be no one in front of him that could get into the box or make a decent run for him. Um but those four players that I've just mentioned in the middle now seem to be on a similar sort of wavelength to him. And more exciting for me, and you know, I don't I don't wanna bang on about English football, but um, you know, eight of our starters for the last two games were British. Uh so I think Villa are the last Premier League side to have started an all-English side. Um, Eight of our 11 last night were British, or seven were English, if you take out McGinn. So, you know, we're building a solid foundation of young British English players. Um, And it's a really nice thing for us to see as Villa fans at the minute.
2: As for Leicester City, Niall, it's been a disappointing-ish start for the season. They've got Jamie Vardy out at the moment. They've got Pereira out. uh, And Diddy's still injured. Madison is still injured as well, I think. And they just look a little bit toothless, don't they?
5: Yeah, I think you said the word blunt earlier on in the podcast. I think that's a really great way to describe Leicester at the moment. I mean, the alarm bell should have been ringing when they got dicked by West Ham. I mean, that's that's a cause for concern <laughs> <laughs> at any stage of a season, no matter how good West Ham are playing. So, um, so, yeah, but somehow Leicester is still fourth. You know, they've lost their last two games. Um, And I know it was only 1-0 due to a late goal last night um, from Aston Villa, but certainly I wouldn't say that Leicester were very convincing throughout the game. So, you know, they've lost their last two games with no real offering, no real threat at the other end uh, after winning their first three. And they're still in fourth position. So it just shows your kind of erratic nature of the Premier League at this moment in time. So... You know, if you look at the position in the table, you might think, "Well, Leicester—they're all right. They're just having a bit of a bit of a rough patch." But really, there is issues all over the pitch, as you mentioned. Those injuries not helping. Uh, Jamie Vardy missing is always a big blow. You know, he's, he's perennial, isn't he? Vardy—it doesn't matter where, how far into the thirties he gets, yeah. he still seems to put in decent performances and score goals every single season. I'm glad you mentioned Ndidi because I think for me. He is so important to Leicester City. I think he's a massive cog in that Brendan Rodgers wheel. I think he's really underrated as a midfielder who not only can break up play, but he can progress the ball forward as well. Um, his vision is excellent and I think that's where Leicester have been so strong and the reason they've kept coming over the last three or four seasons is because of their recruitment and we're speaking about how Aston Villa have signed good players this summer Leicester City seem to always replace what they've got with someone equally as good Um, so for instance when N'Golo Conte left Ndidi kind of stepped in and and he's been good ever since in that middle uh, in the middle of the park Um, Maguire leaves everyone speaks about how are Leicester going to replace him they replace him with Soyuncu who again was missing yesterday so I do think that their recruitment has been decent. However, what, you know, how do you legislate for that many injuries? Well, you need to be a little bit smarter. You need to try and figure out, you know, which players fit in which gaps, and uh, and that's the difficulties of management. But there are issues all over the pitch at the moment for Leicester. It's not just up front where they look a little bit toothless. They do feel like at the back they're not quite as solid as they. As they were, um, and and that's an issue for Brendan Rodgers to address. How they do that is is the reason that Brendan Rodgers is a Premier League manager, and I just sit on a podcast and talk about <laughs> what he could do better. But um, but seriously, Leicester City, I feel, um, they they really need to do kind of sort themselves out because if they don't, they, you know, they could drop down the table quite quickly because Arsenal on level points, Tottenham and Chelsea just a point behind, and West Ham as well, mm. along with Leeds and City and a few others creeping up behind them, just two points behind. So you know, the nature of the Premier League, as you say and fast and you know the games will come uh, uh, to the point where Leicester City might be looking over their shoulders if they don't start picking up points.
3: I, I think I mean just, just sort of on Leicester City one of the things that um, it was really evident last night without Vardy on the pitch they've got no outlet at the front you know they've got Ian Atch mm. who is a good player um, but he's not Jamie Vardy you know he's not the same type of player as Jamie Vardy and you saw their players get into the final third and then be thinking OK, well, what can I do now? Where, where's my rumours? Where's the players in the box? Um, and I think one of the challenges they're always going to have is they've not got the right backup for Jamie Vardy. Ian Atchley is a very different type of player. Um, but then nobody's going to come to Leicester City. Uh, you know, a top striker's not going to come to Leicester City as a backup to Jamie mm-hmm. Vardy. Because why would they? You know, so it, it's a challenge that they're always going to have. But um, you're right, without without Jamie Vardy up front, and, and indeed, as you say, you know, it was a massive loss for last night. Um, but without Vardy up front, there are there are no other players really that do his job, uh, and you really saw that last night. They just ran out of ideas in the final third.
2: I think it was Brendan Rodgers that said Jamie Vardy could be out for the next five games as well for Leicester City, which normally would sound quite troubling. But when you look at Leicester City's fixtures. The next five games takes them to the first week in November. So actually not that long because they've got all the Europa League matches to contend with. So exactly how long he's going to be out, I'm not sure. But speaking of injuries, the big news this weekend was obviously the injury to Virgil van Dijk. We could sit here and argue about, along with Liverpool fans, as to whether the Premier League should be (laughs) cancelled instantly in honour of Virgil van Dijk (laughs) and whether Jordan Pickford should be banned for football for life. But we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to get some proper prognosis on how it looks for the Liverpool defender, because earlier today I caught up with football injury expert Ben Dinnery about the injury to Virgil van Dijk. Anyone who's anyone's resident injury expert, Ben Dinnery, how you doing Ben?
0: Good morning, Jim. Yeah, man, it's been a it's been a busy weekend, but but yes, happy and all all good.
2: Yeah, I can imagine a very busy morning as well with the latest on Virgil van Dyke's injury and his social media posts and all that kind of thing. Firstly, can you clear up for us exactly what it is that Virgil van Dyke has done?
0: Yeah, so what we do know, um, and like I said there's nothing official from the from the club with regards to this, but looking at mechanism of, of injury, um, i.e., I, you know, how the uh, the impact came from Jordan Pickford and how the, the sort of knee um, bent and hyperextended. It looks like there's damage, certainly to the anterior cruciate ligament. Um, we know that for sure. And reading from the Liverpool website, you know they said the key word for me was ligaments. Now, in those types of injuries, those types of setbacks, you know the ACL is rarely done in isolation, mm. um, and, and there could be also damage there to the medial collateral ligament. Um, first on, on first viewings, I actually thought there could be potentially damage there to the, to the posterior the PCL, but hopefully just the MCL and the ACL. Um, like us say furthermore, but nothing official in terms of what we you know what we actually know that's happened in the joint there.
2: Just clear up for me because I've heard ACL a hundred times, but if I'm looking at my leg, where is my ACL?
0: So we're looking at the femur, which is the thigh bone and that's a, a ligament that attaches to the top of your tibia your shin bone and it's one of two stabilizing ligaments and that prevents you know excessive movement between the thigh bone and the shin bone. it's a really sort of strong ligament that keeps the knee and secure and locked in
2: okay so essentially it's holding the leg together
0: um it is yeah it, that in the, in the posterior uh, cruciate ligament will you know those are the two main uh ligaments and keeping that leg and that knee you know nice and strong
2: okay well that gives us an idea of exactly how severe the injury could be and exactly how important it is when have we seen an injury like this before are there any recent examples of players that would have suffered similarly
0: very similar injuries i mean for example we had tom heaton and uh wesley who both suffered similar injuries back on new year's day and this shows just i suppose the, the the slight nuances between the, the, the different injuries. We have Tom Heaton who is approaching a comeback and we understand that is pretty much a straightforward ACL injury. You know, we're talking maybe 10 months in. Mm. Uh, Wesley's is a little bit more uh, complicated. There was secondary damage within that and we're probably looking you know, at the beginning of 2021. So in, in the region of around maybe 12 to 13 months for his potential return to play.
2: So, what's the best case scenario for Virgil Van Dijk? I guess it's very difficult to give an exact return date, not knowing more details of the injury, as you say. But when are Liverpool fans likely to see him again? I assume it's not going to be this season. Is it going to be next year? When are we looking?
0: Um, look, if, if any any player such as you know suffers such a, a serious setback as this, may um, default would be eight to nine months. Are there examples of players who've returned, uh, you know, ahead of that timeline? Yes. But they're very much the exception, you know, rather than the norm. In recent times, we could maybe look to Newcastle United's uh, Florian Lejeune. Um, he made a return to play for the under twenty threes within one hundred and twenty days. Wow. Um, yeah. So you know, we're talking four months, um, but that depends on the type of surgery, yeah, the rehab. Um, you know, what the research will tell us that if a player does return to play within that nine month period then they are at risk increased risk of injury incidents of re-injury or recurrence and we actually seen that when he suffered a, uh, a, a setback within a, a matter of months of his return so you know if it goes straightforward and it goes really really well without any setbacks you know we could maybe be looking at six to seven months you know van dijk will probably have you know one eye on the summer and uh, maybe involved in international football uh, the reality is Liverpool, you know, maybe want to focus on next season and getting a good pre-season under his belt, you know, and, and making sure that his fitness levels and his knee, you know, are, are all ready for, um, you know, maybe August next year.
2: I was going to say, because with an ACL injury, you quite often see players coming back and then breaking down again. Is that because they're rushed back to action? Or is that because that with an ACL injury, often it can a weakness can develop and the player maybe never quite recovers?
0: yeah well i mean so contrary to to popular belief and and we always hear you know the 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 default from players tends to be you know i will come back better stronger faster (laughs) than when i did the reality of the situation is um you know very few players rarely do that we're talking about elite level performers um playing at their their highest optimum levels so you take that away um, you know, and it, and it's going to be. It's a long, hard road to recovery. Um, you often see that players who suffer this type of injury maybe change their behaviours on the pitch. So, you know, the decision making, the way they play. They may, you know, uh, they may go for certain balls. They may change their, their characteristics on the pitch. Um, and, and certainly, after any long-term injury, it's not uncommon for for players to suffer maybe soft tissue or, or muscular problems, just as their bodies are you know, being built up to to tolerate the demands of the game once more. Um, It doesn't matter how much work you do on the training pitches, um, no matter how many behind closed doors games or or non-competitive friendlies you're involved in, there's nothing that can replicate crossing that white line in the Premier League. And that's why players will will pick up a few sort of Mm -hmm. minor knocks along the way. Um, You know, uh, football is time crunched. The second you are injured stakeholders, managers, players, they all want to know when I'm going to be back on that pitch. You know, and very rarely are players maybe afforded, you know, the luxury of, of time and coaches to, you know, allow it to go through that whole process. Um, but, you know, players are well looked after these days. And there is an accelerated protocol in place. So it'll not just be, you know, we're not bound by time maybe where we were in the past, Mm. where we'd say, you know, you will be jogging by six weeks and you may be sprinting by two months. And what we'll do now, when we talk about um, accelerated protocol, it's about, you know, players being able to undertake certain activities regardless of the timeline, without any kind of reaction. So maybe any swelling or anything like that. And then once you're able to do that efficiently, effectively, without any problems, and then you move on to the next stage. Now that might take somebody four weeks, it may take somebody else 12 weeks. It, it, you know, it, it, there's just no sort of yeah. um, you know, definitive guide on
3: that.
2: The way you describe the injury, and I think about how Virgil van Dyke plays as a player, and he's 29 now, but he's very physical. He's got a hell of a spring on him. He's incredibly athletic. Is there a chance that he might not make a full recovery and be the player he was? I mean, he's, he's starting at an incredibly high level in terms of how much of a percentage of performance he can lose and still be very effective as a defender in the Premier League. But it feels like, I mean, with an injury like this and with the way he plays, that it's not a straightforward recovery.
0: Uh, Definitely not. Uh, And there are absolutely no guarantees whatsoever. Um, You know, uh, and no guarantees that, you know, should Virgil van Dijk go through the whole process, you know, tick all the boxes, um, you know, maintain those base levels, even surpass some of those baseline levels, um, you know, markers, that he won't come back and, and suffer a, a potential setback. Um, however, what I would say is, you know, there's, there's, there's still hope and optimism there. If we look at two players who've performed, you know, a reasonably high level this season, um, who've suffered ACL injuries in the past, we just have to look at maybe Aston Villa, and mm. um, Tyrone Mings. His was ACL and MCL. I think he spent maybe around 13 to 14 months on the sidelines. You know, he's flourishing now um, and at Newcastle, my hometown club, you know, Callum Wilson, again, another player who's suffered, you know, um, two ACL injuries. And he's, you know, he continues to bang the goals in and, and looking very sharp for us.
2: Ben, thank you very much for keeping us updated. Really fascinated to hear you speak as always. If people want more, and I'm sure you're going to be updating everyone on the uh, latest and ongoing injury saga with Virgil van Dijk, where can they find you?
0: Um, Yeah, so I've spent most of my days on Twitter. It's at Ben Dinnery. But if you just want a little bit of an overview um, of the injury, um, a little insight on return to play dates, um, you can get that all at www.premierinjuries.com. Top man, Ben. Thanks, Jim.
2: Right, we'll be back on Football Social Daily very shortly. We're going to talk about tonight's games because Leeds United are taking on Wolverhampton Wanderers and West Bromwich Albion are facing Burnley. We'll do that next on Football Social Daily.
4: Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates, and match reports now. Just ask Open Sports Social.
2: Welcome back to Football Social Daily. There are two games tonight in the Premier League. We've got Leeds versus Wolves. We'll talk about that very shortly. And first, it's the game that we've been waiting all weekend for. (laughs) It's West Brom versus Burnley. Massive game. It's a weird one, this Nile, because this is the first weekend we've seen the pay-per-view scenario taking effect, where fans can pay £15 to watch a game that wouldn't have otherwise been on television. The fact that West Brom Burnley is one of the matches that fans are going to be paying £15 for. There was a load of complaints about people paying 15 quid for Newcastle, Manchester United at the weekend, with no disrespect to any teams, but it's a far bigger game. What do you reckon the audience figures are going to be like for this one? Oh, five, And that's just the
5: players' mums? <laughs> um, no, in seriousness, if you think about, you know, let's just say as a round figure, uh, 10,000 people tune in, which... In terms of a live football match or even a live stream is a very, very small amount. If we say 10,000 people tune in, that's still 150 grand in revenue
2: and mm. all of that money will go to the clubs. Let's not forget that. All of that money will go to the clubs. Well, no, it doesn't. The money all goes to the Premier League and it goes to the broadcasters. Very, very. Little. Are you sure? Of it. there was this big. Was there not? Was it? Was it I've not released that, that there was a hundred percent of profits are going to the
5: clubs? Was that not part of the agreement? I
2: don't. I that might be the case. I've I've heard of someone that's relatively well informed that told me this, and I can't divulge who they are. <laughs> but they said that.
3: Sorry, I was going to say if, it, if it's the profit, um, with the cost of what it, you know, it's going to cost to put the game on, um, and and to record it and, and do all the coverage, they're probably going to yeah. make about twenty five p, um, mean, know, of ten thousand fans. In. so I don't get what you're saying. There are
2: broadcast costs, obviously. I think we might have, we'll have to file this under "we don't know" at the moment as to where that money's, <laughs> where that money's actually going, or where that money's going to end up. But go on, Noel. Oh well, in that case, then they won't get 150 grand a game. But
5: I'm almost certain that yeah. I read when the when the first sort of initial statement was released that 100 percent of profits will go to clubs. In fact, I remember talking about it on the podcast. So apologies if there's any misinformation there. Um, but even so, I think it just goes to show uh, the reason why this game wasn't selected for TV in the first place. You've got two clubs mm. who, you know, are small clubs in the context of the Premier League. Um but I think this is actually a very, very interesting fixture just purely because they're two sides that are desperate for points, Jim. Burnley haven't won yet this season. Um West Brom will be slightly more buoyant um considering they got that 3-3 draw against Chelsea. So To be honest, I think this could be actually a more interesting game than people are giving it credit for. But in terms of the the broadcast revenue, yeah, there's been a real storm about this $14.95 to watch games on pay-per-view. Just purely because it's so out of touch. It's tone deaf in the current climate where people are really Mm. scraping together every penny. Some people don't know um, whether they're going to have a job by the end of this month. Uh, In the UK, some people don't have their job, they've lost their job, so they've been made redundant, which is really sad to see. So to charge people 15 quid to watch a game when, you know, they're hard up anyway, it's just in the current, you know, social climate, financial climate, as I mentioned, I think it's tone deaf. We've spoken about it on the show before. Um, there's only 15 matches so far that have been chosen to do PPV and one of those, as you say, at the weekend was Newcastle United versus Manchester United and that would no doubt have had a much larger audience figure than this one will have tonight. I think that's guaranteed. But people are missing football so much, Jim, and I think that that's the, that's the key to this. People are, People are missing watching their team in the flesh so much that they're almost compelled to spend that 15 quid, even though it's an extortionate amount of money, in my opinion, for a live stream. Mm. People will spend it because they miss watching their side so much. It's such an integral part of our culture in this country to follow every game, as closely as possible and there is no closer way at this moment in time than to watch the games on TV unfortunately unless you've got the privilege of going to the stadium as a journalist or a broadcaster then you can't watch the games so I do feel that this is um, a difficult situation because people will pay this money just because they miss their they miss watching their football team so much, but at the same time, it's far too much. So, yeah, I don't know what the what the way forward is for this. It doesn't feel like it's going away. Um, and the problem is, is I think that they'll be able to come out with the figures in the next couple of weeks and say, well, look, people are paying the money, so why should why should we get rid of it? So that's the problem mm. I, I see with it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know about the profits, but certainly that's my take on it.
2: A load of Newcastle fans this weekend refused to pay the subscription, the pay-per-view fee, but instead found, and I'm not condoning the finding of illegal streams, but found legal streams to watch and donated £15 to a local food bank. And as a result, the local food bank had hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of additional money donated to them as a good cause this weekend, which is quite a nice way to do it. But like I say, not condoning that kind of activity at all. As for the game itself, Tom, West Brom versus Burnley. Is it too early? early to label this one, a relegation six
3: pointer? It's I, I don't think it's ever too early, um, to, to, label a game as a six pointer. You know, both teams are, are looking like they might be, you know, in the, in the bottom six at the end of the season. Um, actually, and I probably shouldn't admit this, but I quite like West Brom as a side, you know, they, they might be a local rival of, of Villa, but, um, they, they hate us more than we hate them, I think, um, <laughs> you know, I, th- I think, it, I think it's quite nice to have teams like West Brom in and around, um, Burnley, you know, Sean Dyche, I think the thing that you can always appreciate with his teams is that they're going to be difficult to break down they're difficult to beat. Um, maybe not so far this season, but come the end of the season, you, you'd expect them to, to be putting in a much better defensive display than they currently are. But um, yeah, no, I don't think it's ever ever too early to, to label something as a six-pointer. I look back at last season when Villa beat Norwich 5-1, um, and that was a, you know a similar sort of stage of the season quite early on. It was the 6th of October last year, I mm. remember it, because we didn't score five balls very much last year. Um, mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, that plunged Norwich right deep down in, into trouble and they really struggled to get out of that. Um, and it's more than that. It's the momentum that you start building up. It's the players' chins might drop. You know, they might start believing that they're going to struggle. Um, and it's quite difficult to then get yourself out of that mire, um, <clears throat> which we saw with not just Villa last season, you know, coming into March, but you saw it with Norwich. Um, you know, the, the other teams around, you Sort it with Bournemouth, you sort it with Watford, it's really difficult once you start losing games to, to then get yourself out of it, so um, absolutely not, I think it is a six-pointer, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's a very dull, boring game of football.
2: Have Burnley set themselves up to fail, Nile, this season because they've not recruited, they've got an incredibly thin squad. Tom says, we associate Burnley with it being this team that's really tough to break down, but they conceded four at Leicester City, they conceded, I think it was three to Newcastle. Mm. So they have shipped goals this season against teams that you, you, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't say are going to be threatening the, the big boys this year. No, true, but I mean, we talk about injuries and if we're giving
5: teams credit for performing with injuries... Um, in their squad then we need to say the same about Burnley it's not fair to say to Leicester that they're only playing badly because they've got injuries and not levelling that at Burnley as well because Ben Mee and James Tarkovsky for the first three or four games their two key centre-backs weren't playing Um, and I think that's really important to mention Ashley Barnes is on the comeback trail he had an operation which made him miss the whole of Project Restart and uh, he's only just coming back into the fold so they have had their injuries and, and we know what Sean Dyche has had to work with we know that in terms of Premier League budgets Burnley by far, are in the bottom three or four. So they've spent a million pounds in the summer. That was on Dale Stevens, who wasn't getting a game at Brighton, and they were happy to let him go up to Burnley. Um, and he's been playing some games. He's been trying to get back up to speed as well. So I think that that's important to mention, that Burnley, although they've kind of not spent that much money, I think that's to do with the financial climate, and it's hard to give them too much stick for that because... You know they're a club that's owned by fans in terms of the fact that their chairman Mike Garlick is a Burnley supporter and I think that that's important to mention as well so there's been rumours of American investment sniffing around Burnley the last few weeks but the supporters of Burnley, the Clarets fans, are quite happy in the fact that although they've not spent much money they just wanted to see some bodies through the door and that didn't happen either but aside from that they're happy with the fact that the owners of the club do have the interests of Burnley at heart and I think that goes quite far in the modern day and age. So, yeah, I think that they are in for a struggle this season, but Burnley always are. But yet they're a side that seem to grind out results, Jim. You know, they'll lose um, to West Brom and then they'll go next week and they'll go and beat whoever they've got next week quite comfortably because that's just what Burnley do. Every season their style of play gets criticized. You know what they're going to do. They're going to smash the ball up to Chris Wood. They're going to use Dwight McNeil down the wings to try and whip balls into the big man up front whoever whoever that is whether it's Wood or Barnes and Wood playing in a two. You know, they put balls into the box and teams cannot deal with them at set pieces and it's been the same for four or five years. And you know, even though that they've got this style of play that everyone knows what they're going to do, They still grind out results every season. You know, maybe it's coming to an end in terms of its lifespan of a a tactic to use in the Premier League. Maybe teams are finding them out. But Sean Dyche always seems to get results. I think he's an underrated manager in the sense that, you know, his, his budget is a shoestring and he knows what he's got to work with. And being a club in the Northwest as well, being able to attract players is difficult. Um, so, cert- you know, it's not the most desirable place to live. No offence to Burnley. But, you know, if you're, if you're a foreign player thinking about moving to the Premier League, you probably wouldn't, you know, you know, pin on a map Burnley. So, you know, it's just one of those things where they've got kind of a little microcosm there of different factors, which makes them, um, punch, makes them punch above their weight season after season. And I think that it's easy to forget because you just think Burnley, Premier League club, they should have all these resources. They don't. And I think that's why Sean Dyche deserves utmost credit. The football might be ugly, but Burnley fans are just delighted to see that their team is competitive. Um, If that means that they have to scrap to stay up this season, then so be it. I think they'll take that after a couple of seasons of uh, near enough, well, one season of Europa League qualification. Um, They've been in the top 10 a couple of times. They've beaten the likes of Manchester United in recent seasons. So, you know, Burnley fans will be quite happy with their journey in the Premier League so far. And I don't think they're blinkered to think that they're going to finish in the Europa League every season or top 10 every season. So, so, yeah, I think that you, you've you got a point in saying that maybe they've set themselves up to fail, but I think the core squad that Burnley have got, if they can keep them all fit, and that's the key, because they've had so many injuries, I think they'll be all right. I think they'll be all right. They, I don't think they'll finish in the top 10 this year. I think that it will be a real slog for them. Um, but I think that they've just got this knack of getting results,
2: and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Injury problems for West Brom at the moment as well there without a proven goal scorer. Robson Canoe is out long term, and Callum Robson out as well at the moment. Well he's self-isolating, I think, after a coronavirus scare. So it doesn't look like there's going to be a massive amount of goals in that game. The other game tonight maybe looks a little bit more enticing. Leeds United versus Wolverhampton Wanderers. I'm kind of dubbing this one the surprise package versus the disappointment, Tom, because I think Leeds I know a lot of people were tipping them to do well this season, but I wasn't one of them. And as for Wolves, I thought they were going to be stepping up to that next level this year, but they seem to have not quite delivered so far.
3: Yeah, um, I mean, cards on the table straight away. These are two teams that I really, really don't like. Um, So I'm (laughs) going to try my best to be very impartial and not just, you know, slide them both off. But... um, I think um, with you, I thought Leeds would struggle. They've done a lot better than I thought they would. Um, you know, Marcelo Bielsa, I know he gets plaudits and, and clichés and you know, he's called the, you know, the best manager in the world football or whatever Leeds fans think he is. But, um, you know, he has done really well so far. And I think he actually set out the blueprint of how a team can play against Liverpool and do well against Liverpool, which others are now copying. So, you know, fair play to them. They've done well. Um, I think they will struggle later on in the season because they play such quick fast football um, and they haven't got the biggest squad uh, so you know I think injuries suspensions and um, tiredness will become a factor later on in the season um, and, and with Wolves you know they've they've lost two of their best players or you know two, two of their best performers from last season um, they've tried to replace them time will tell whether they're not, they've replaced them well um, but it, we are only you know fourth or fifth game <clears throat> we're only in the fourth or fifth game at the minute so it's too early to say that Wolves are going to be a disappointment um, in the same way that it's too early I think to say that Leeds are going to finish you know top top eight top ten um but you're right at the moment um it's looking that way um i think it will be an entertaining game both teams play really good football uh Leeds, I think for me in this game based on the way that it's you know things have been going recently, I've probably got the edge and, and I quite mm-hmm. fancy them to do well tonight um, It is Ellen Elland Road and I think we were all talking earlier about fans being a factor in how well Villa have performed so far this season I would expect as the season progresses that the fans not being inside Elland Road to, to start being a factor for, for Leeds because um, as much as it really upsets me to say it, their fans are phenomenal and they make a loud noise um, and they can support their team so I think um, as, as the season goes on, we're going to start seeing the effects of that potentially. I think it's probably a little bit of um, adrenaline. <laughs> that sounds really sort of mm-hmm. um, a little bit disrespectful to say that, but I think adrenaline at the moment is getting their team um, <clears throat> the results that they're getting because they're in the Premier League. It's been 15, was it 15, 16 years since they were last here. So they are really putting on a show at the minute. Um, but as, as those suspensions start coming, the injuries start hitting, uh, I, I do worry that they might start dropping off a little bit as the season goes on.
2: You do say that, but it's a hell of a run Leeds are on at the moment. It, not just from this season, it's now only two losses in the last 18 games. So it's a bit of a decent run that Leeds are on right now. It could be improved as well tonight, uh, tonight Niall, because new signing Rafina, could be on display for Leeds for the very first time. Not a player I know a massive amount about, but could this be another decent bit of business for Bielsa? I'll be honest, I have no idea because when I
5: saw that Leeds United had signed Rafinha, I thought it was the one who'd just gone to PSG. I was like, how have they pulled that off? (laughs) Um, Obviously, it's a different Rafinha, spelt differently. Um, You've got to trust Marcelo Bielsa in terms of his signings. The ones that he's made over the course of his time at at Leeds United have been effective. And, you know, I think as well that a lot of credit uh, or a lot of focus is being placed on Rafinha and Rodrigo as well, who's another new signing, who's a Spanish Mm. international. But Patrick Bamford, I want people to focus a little bit more on him because he wasn't given a chance by Chelsea when he was at Chelsea. He had a few loan spells, one at Swansea in the Premier League. It didn't really work out. But when he went on loan to Middlesbrough in the Championship a couple of years ago, I think he scored something like 17 or 18 goals and he was the uh, the Championship Player of the Season in the year that Middlesbrough got promoted. I know we're going back a few years, but this is a lad who never got given a chance at Chelsea and he's a proven goal scorer in the Championship and is now starting to find his feet in the Premier League um, at Leeds United. So... I think that Bamford is as much of a of a threat to any defence at this moment in time than Rodrigo or even Rafinha. However he gets on, we don't know. Obviously, we'll have to wait and see if he does feature tonight for Leeds. But... But yeah, I think up front, um, Leeds United uh, have got a good crop of strikers to choose from, or at least forward players to choose from. So yeah, we'll we'll wait and see. I just think that with Leeds fans, I mean, you talk about the run that they're on. I don't think you can... uh, It's true, they are on a great run, but the Championship and the Premier League and the way that the season ended last year compared to the way it started this year, it's not conventional. So I don't think we can read too much into that. But their record's the same, um, pretty much the same as West Ham's, albeit West Ham's played a game more. So... You know, you take a look at the uh, at the other teams that are also on seven points and you think are Leeds still going to finish in the top 10? So I'm not so sure they are. I mean, I did say at the start of the season, I said, I don't think Leeds are going to finish in the top 10. And if they're in the top 10 by Christmas, I'll come out and apologise to all Leeds fans. And I'm going to stick by that <laughs> because although they're ninth at this moment in time, Manchester City are still below them in the table. Manchester United, Wolves, Crystal Palace, Newcastle, Southampton, all below them in the table. Now you think at least two or three of those teams will start picking up before too long um, and probably move above Leeds in the table. So I just wonder... Um, what Leeds fans are expecting from tonight's game because I think Wolves, although they've not really given a great account of themselves, as as you say, Jim, I do think they're due a result. uh, Mm. And whether it becomes tonight against Leeds, I don't know. So, yeah, we'll have to wait and see what happens there. Um, As for Rafinha, I can't profess to know too much about him, but the best way to make an impact is to to have a good debut and make a good impression. Um, But like I say, trust Marcelo Bielsa with his signings you know he is a bit of a professor isn't he when it comes to football philosophy and everyone seems to love him and i just i've said this before i just wonder what will happen to leeds if, if something happens and he decides to leave or i don't think he will by the way i'm not suggesting that he will leave or get sacked but let's just say for something for some reason he does i just wonder how leeds will deal with that because it feels very much that that side is centred around bielsa and what bielsa brings as a manager rather than some of those players and i think it's time we start focusing on those players rather than the manager because it's the players that ultimately
2: execute the plan and they've been doing well so far. I think you're right. I think Patrick Bamford's been a revelation this season considering there were so many question marks about him over the summer and from the little I do know about Rafina, I think he'll help that supply line to the front. I think he's a he likes to play, he's left-footed, but I think he likes to play on the right. So he kind of enjoys cutting in and having a pop as, a goal as well as setting up his teammates. So it'll be interesting to see him playing. Any score predictions for this one? I think we've predicted every possible scenario from Leeds winning because it's a home draw to Wolves finally fi- finding that <laughs> spark. So if we're going to settle on something, what are you saying? Go on, Tom, you go first.
3: Uh, no, I, I fancy Leeds as I said. I think it'll be, um, I think there'll be goals in it. So 3-2, uh, something like that.
5: No, I think, I think you're right. There will be goals in it, but just to play devil's advocate and because we haven't seen a nil-nil in the Premier League for something like, <laughs> I think July was the last time there was a nil-nil in the Premier League. Um, could we see a nil-nil? No, I'm
2: joking. It's going to be two nil leads. <laughs> Fair enough. Right, we're going to talk about Crystal Palace in a minute. They are the team under the floodlight focus. We're also going to say goodbye to Tom before he gets a parking ticket. Bye-bye, Tom.
5: Goodbye, thanks very much. Cheers, Tom.
2: <laughs> and myself and Niall will be talking Crystal Palace next on Football Social Daily.
4: Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social.
2: Welcome back to Football Social Daily. It is time to shift our focus to another Premier League club with floodlight focus. And today it's Crystal Palace under the spotlights. And we've got Joe Doyle, who is the... Crystal Palace correspondent for London Football joining us. How are you doing, Joe? Really good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, Tar. I've got to say, and I might be being unfair here, it feels that Crystal Palace have picked up completely where they left off last season in that they're being reasonably solid but quite uninspiring at the same time. Is that a fair assessment of the club at the moment?
6: I think that's completely fair. Um, I think they started the season really well with two really surprise results against Southampton and Manchester United who uh, after the Premier League restart were two of the form teams. I think they were the second and third best performing teams over the nine games. So really that perhaps raised expectations slightly um, despite the manner of the wins. Um, you know, they were, Palace were pretty much on the back foot for most of the games. And that's really continued in the next three games against Everton, Chelsea and Brighton. You just need to look at the statistics for everything that's happened in the games. I think yesterday against Brighton, there was one shot and it was the penalty for Zaha. So it's really been quite uninspiring uh, in attack. I think that's the first, uh, I saw a stat that it's the first time that that's ever happened since Opta have uh, collected stats on it. Wow. So, yeah, there's, it's... Obviously, they did have a goal disallowed for offside that was really nice, why um, firing home. But um, I think there is a certain, a little bit of pressure building on the fact that, you know, they put in a decent performance against Everton, but obviously had the bit of a dodgy VAR call go against them. And then they followed that up with an okay first half against Chelsea and an absolute collapse in the second half. And yesterday against Brighton, they were pretty much dominated for most of the game. They had a decent spell after they scored. But apart from that, it's not been too much to write home about.
5: Does that sum up Roy Hodgson quite nicely then, Joe? The fact that, you know, they were dominated yesterday against Brighton. They perhaps um, didn't quite get the job done against Chelsea. Is pragmatic a good way to describe him? Because, you know, Crystal Palace, as you mentioned, seven points on the board this season, Um, good start to the season with some decent results, but From the Palace fans that I've spoken to, some of them feel that they're not too sure how they've ended up getting points with the performances that they've got. So is it just simply the Roy Hodgson factor of finding a way to pick up a result, even if it doesn't feel that convincing?
6: Yeah, I think so. Um, I think against United, um, you know, we're just a bit of a shambles at the back. And they really did capitalise on that well with the likes of uh, Schlupp and Townsend um, getting forward quite well. But that hasn't really happened as much in the last few games. I think Schlupp being out was a big factor in the Everton and Chelsea games because he offers a lot defensively as well as going forward. And while uh, Eberici, Eze came in for him, he's not perhaps as used to playing in the role that he has been uh, for Palace, uh, as wide on the left and doing a bit more defensively than in the attacking form. I think that was... I think Townsend and Schlupp, for example, yesterday were p- pretty good. They did really solid work defensively. I think. But then uh, I think Townsend put in the cross for the penalty that was uh, slightly dodgy as well. But hmm. they didn't really get much of a chance to offer anything going forward because they were sat back. So deep defending, um, I think pragmatic is pretty much the way he Roy Hodgson could be described. Um, looks to be a solid team and try and hit teams on the counter attack, but you can only go on playing that way for so long before someone starts to wonder, could, could I be getting better results out of the players with a different manager?
2: Well, what's the long-term plan at Crystal Palace then? Because, I mean, Roy Hodgson, whether he wants to stay or not, he's not going to carry on forever. He's at the tail end of his career. The club have been burnt before by an attempt to play a more expansive football, but sooner or later, the fans are going to start demanding that development, that change again. So, how long does it? How long do you does does the club wait before they go? Right, we need to bring in a Graham Potter and Eddie Howe, someone like that, to play a different style of football. Well, I
6: think you'll see. Probably the direction that they're headed at the end of the season, because Roy contracts. Oh, uh, sorry, Roy Hodgson's contract is up at the end of the season. Um, whether he gets another season or not, it's hard to tell at the moment. Um, he said recently in one of his press conferences that as long as he's feeling good about it and still has that enthusiasm, he's still going to keep going. So mm. I do wonder how long Palace will be content with that. They're making big strides at the moment in terms of the academy and building that up. They've just got their tier one status and they're really bringing through some decent young players. a lot of Tyreek Mitchell has made a big impression on the first team so far and he kept Patrick Vernon out yesterday. Um, I'm not sure whether he'll continue to do that as the season goes on. It's something they'll have to see, but it's... I think you look at the signings that they've made mm. as well recently, like Everett Eze is definitely a good player now, but he's really one who Palace have got their sights set on for the future of the club. Hodgson, yeah. he's still got quite a lot of um, good faith at Palace. Fans still like him as a person. I just wonder how much longer he's going to carry on. It still seems like it's all a bit up in the air at the moment um, and how much of a mm. risk palace are prepared to take roy hodgson does bring that solid type of football but it does tend to yield some decent results and i did see that um if you averaged out palace's points so far for the rest of the season they'd be on for a record points in the premier League. so (laughs) uh, despite the uninspiring football he is at the moment bringing premier league football for the foreseeable future which um given the times we're in, is obviously something that the owners will be pretty happy about.
5: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the academy, to be honest, because I think that's one of the the unsung successes of Crystal Palace Football Club is how fruitful that academy is I mean you just go back and think about some of the names who've come through even players that are still playing in the Premier League obviously Klein now back at Selhurst Park Zaha a product of the academy um, I think Victor Moses as well was part of the academy Clinton Morrison to go back a few more years um, Routledge Hayden Mullins I think even Vince Hilaire back in the day who's a, who's a friend of mine actually so you know you think about the the You know, academy that Crystal Palace has Um, now Wan Bissaka now, and of course, um, as you mentioned. Uh, Tyrick Mitchell so I mean how much joy does that bring to Palace supporters because we've mentioned on the podcast before there's nothing quite like being the fan of a football club and seeing kind of a homegrown hometown talent come through make it into the first team and start making waves it's kind of one of the, the feel-good factors about being a football fan is the fact that academies can produce talents that become fan favourites and is that kind
2: as of As long as you don't sell them all
5: the time well, no, West That's Ham the sell them though, all the time Jim yeah that is the yeah, key is true. <laughs> um, <laughs> but from a Crystal Palace perspective that must be really pleasing for the fans to see all these young lads given a chance by Roy
6: yeah I think like you said it's probably one of the best things in football is seeing someone come through your academy and really make themselves a star in the first team it's, it brings that sort of feeling of it's more your club than just someone who could be bought from anywhere else in the world particularly at the moment South London's a really hot breeding ground for footballers you see the likes of Jaden Sancho uh, Callum Hudson Odoi hugely popular uh, area for footballers uh, making it to the big leagues at the moment. Palace have recognised that and, you know, uh, really focused on making sure that their academy can be the top notch and that they can try in the future to bring through the best young talent in South London to sellers Park. It's obviously beneficial in more than just having young players. It helps fill your team. Like in the case of Aaron wan he went for what, 50 million pounds, you know, help help rebuild your squad if you have deficiencies elsewhere and it can arguably help keep you in the Premier League.
2: Joe, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thanks very much for coming on. If people want to find more from your thoughts, if there's Crystal Palace fans that want to uh, benefit from your knowledge and expertise, where can they find you?
6: Uh, so I'm obviously the Palace reporter for Football. London, So I'll be publishing weekly stuff on there I'm on Twitter at Joe Doyle underscore. Joe, thank you very much for coming on Football Social Daily. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, thanks very much.
2: Nice one, Joe. Right, that is it for Football Social Daily for today. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a show if you're looking for the reviews of the other games over the weekend, including the Spurs versus West Ham game which I've somehow resisted talking about for the last 50 minutes <laughs> no idea how I've managed to do that but I have uh, Then you maybe listen you're to- like that
5: uh, you're like that meme of that kid with loads of veins popping out of his face you just <laughs> yeah. can't wait to talk just about, just about it I just wanted to
2: talk about that and nothing else but I've resisted it instead I'll go and listen to Fergal and the team on yesterday's podcast like you can do too and we'll see you for another Football Social Daily tomorrow
4: Football Social Daily from Sports Social Find us on Instagram at Sports Social Official.